Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 42. And I know we have some visitors, so let me uh, give a little bit of a visitor orientation today. And that is, as you look at your handout there, you'll notice that we're going to, first of all, cover some of the material that the church encourages us to do. And I was just at a next step meeting, meeting some of the new members to the church. And we were talking about uh, the Bible fellowships. And all of us in the Bible fellowships right now are going through what is uh, called foretold. You can see that on the screen here, which is a perfect kind of introduction into the Christmas season. Because even today, we're going to look at messianic prophecy about God's chosen servant. We're going to look at how we can sing a new song and how, in some respects, this servant, as it says, in uh, chapter 43 is God's only Savior. So in some respects, these are things related to Messianic prophecy. And so we will cover that first. And then if you look down a little bit, you see an Ask Kirby. I've already had another Ask Kirby question, but last week I sat down at lunch. The first question to me was, what about eternal security? So you'll notice that's the question that we'll get into today, which relates not only to the question being asked, but also since as the church we're going to Hebrews, right, we're not right now in Hebrews 4, but soon we'll be in Hebrews 6, which a lot of people when they read Hebrews 6 say, that seems to indicate that you could lose your salvation. So I'm going to try to answer that. I hope Jared Stevens or Pastor Graham will also try to address that issue. So it is an important issue, so we'll cover some of that as well. And as we talk about Messianic prophecy, uh, this last week I was up at the Canicut Institute. We have about 60-some-odd college graduates there that are going through a program, and I was teaching on a number of things. One of those has to do with this issue of Messianic prophecy. And uh, you have seen some of these little booklets I write. Well, the next booklet I have coming has on Messianic prophecy, so I'm going to get them to print some extra copies and give it to you. Because as we come to the Christmas season, in some respects, these prophecies about the coming Messiah culminate, at least in terms of the incarnation, with his birth which we celebrate in December, and they finally culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection, which, of course, we celebrate at Easter. So there's some ways in which this comes together. So this is a series right now in Isaiah. Later on, as you can see, we'll be in Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And this is a series that the church takes us through. But as always, I like to, we have a little bit of extra time, try to answer some of your questions. So today, turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 42. You can see this is such a long area. I won't read all the verses simply because there is so much to cover. And uh, so in some respects, I always try to alert you earlier in the week on what we will be studying so that you can have a chance to read it in your quiet time, or if not, this would be something you can look at later in the week, because as we also like to mention to those of you that are visitors, at the bottom you'll see that it says PrestonwoodExamine.org. If you go to that website right now and you have a smartphone or a tablet, you can follow along with the material I have on the screen. If not, you can go back and visit it later. And we're going to look at the Messiah who humbly serves us, and we see that God has a plan. He's a servant, a chosen servant that we see in chapter 43, who fulfills that plan, and how God opens our hearts to sing. We can see, starting in verse 10 on chapter 42, uh, the idea of singing a new song. We're also going to look at some of the promises God gives us and how God faithfully keeps his word. And then as we end chapter 42, before we get into chapter 43, we see the judgment on Israel, which is a reminder that we also face trials 
perhaps even sometimes judgment, mostly just trials and how that helps us to really begin to endure. First nine verses, of course, talks about, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed. One of the illustrations oftentimes used for the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And, of course, you can continue to read in those first nine verses. And here is, again, the beginning of a whole section in which we see God predicting that a servant, a chosen servant, will come. And this is a term he's used before in the idea of human beings, people being servants. We, in the examine class, encourage you to serve. So, in some respects, all of us are servants. But this now is a specific chosen servant that the prophet singles out. And as the passage progresses, we recognize that this is not just any servant. This is a chosen one. Of course, this is one of those messianic prophecies about him. There is, interestingly enough, as I've been doing the research, debates about how many messianic prophecies there are. Everybody comes up with at least 360 plus But some come up with more than 400, because sometimes if you take each one of the verses, you can get some pretty large numbers indeed. So uh, it's kind of interesting, okay, it depends on which particular prophecy experts you look at on what number they use. But more than 300, many people say more than 400 prophecies, and we find ourselves in some of those right now. It talks about this coming servant uh, as one that is chosen deliberately. We see that more in chapter 43. Uh, Also that the Spirit of God rests upon him, and because... Because of this favor, the servant would bring justice to all the people. And Isaiah confirms the place of this Messiah in Israel. And once again, you can see the Jewish confusion because they were expecting a Messiah that would come, would be a conqueror, would institute justice at that time, overthrow the Roman Empire. We recognize that some of those prophecies have to do with his future coming, his second coming, when he will reign from Jerusalem. But we see those actually mixed together here. Also reminds us that the Messiah will walk humbly and in grace, living an unassuming life and those kinds of things. But his ministry will be so calming and peaceful that it can't even harm a weak, broken reed and that idea. And also reminds us that our true strength is found in being gentle and true power that exists as well. Also, it shows us that the Messiah will not lose heart, uh, does not grow weary, but will fill the world and the earth with his justice. Also, just this idea of this promised plan of redemption. We see this, for example, in verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from them, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. And then it talks about his righteousness, his covenant, and the fact that he has come ultimately to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prison of those who sit in darkness. And so here, again, is this idea that he will bring light in a dark world. Also that he is worthy of praise because he sends his own unique son into that. And for those of you taking notes, or if you want to go back to this later, you might put on the side there, I put Matthew 12, again, kind of a fulfillment of that messianic claim, and perhaps the greatest 
greatest fulfillment we see in Revelation 21, verse 5, that he comes to establish justice once and for all. And so a very important aspect of how that fits together with some of these prophecies. Then also, of course, we know that through Christ's suffering, uh, his people receive righteousness and new life. And then also this idea, it talks about here of this idea of the new covenant, that he stands and bears this new covenant in his body and his blood. And again, I gave you some other key verses you might want to look look at if you're doing this in terms of your morning quiet time. Go back and look at these verses because in Luke 20 we have an implication there. And most importantly, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11. So just a couple of connections in the New Testament to what we read here in the Old Testament, in particular in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. Let's, if we can, move on to the next section here. And this is now, Sing to the Lord a New Song. Uh, what a great opportunity for this to be the context for some of our worship songs and some of our praise for him. Because here the theme is that God's chosen servant destroys sin and because of that fills our hearts with a new song. Let's look at that in a little more detail. Here again is the idea of praise. Uh, Verses 10 to 12 talk about how the whole earth praises him. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills us, the coastlines and their inhabitants, let the desert... And his cities lift up their voice in the villages that he inhabits. It goes on to talk about uh, these places in which we would express our glory. And uh, last time I showed you a couple of pictures of the Judean desert and the um, idea. But the concept here is that whether you live in a beachside villa or maybe even rent one when you go down to the coast, or cruise on a boat on the ocean, we're to praise the Lord. Whether you live in an arid desert or in a thriving city, we should praise the Lord. And we should cry out with all our might, even shout out from the mountaintops that God is great. So this is an opportunity to praise the acts of God. And when we see His creation, whether it's uh, the creation that many of us will partake of in Beaver's Bend, whether we go out with Parker when he shows us in his telescope all these other planets and stars and things like that. When we see his creation, that alone should be something we should praise him for, but also, of course, as we reflect upon our salvation, we will reflect on that as well. So they're not only joyful and restorative, but at this point then it takes a rather surprising turn, I would think, because it also points out that God is not only great and has given us creation, but God is great and he will judge, in this particular case, idolatry and those who have set up idol worship in place of worshiping him. And so the last part of chapter 42 uh, moves from the greatness of God in his creation to also the judgment of God upon those who now recognize that uh, this is part of the judgment that came on the nation of Israel. He's faithful to the weak and the blind and the broken. There's certainly freedom. But also, while we may experience physical loss, We might experience personal pain, or in the case, in this case, where they actually experience national shame. Still, 
the encouragement in the midst of that judgment is still God is faithful and God will not forsake his chosen faithful. And, of course, then the emphasis, once again, that runs through this whole section from about chapter 40 on, it always comes back to this idea of him being light, the chosen servant and light in the midst of darkness, which later on, of course, we see the Messiah, Jesus, actually takes people who are in darkness blind and helps them to see there is this idea of light in the midst of darkness. Let's move on then. Um, Chapter 42 kind of ends on, as some people say, a downer. We're talking about judgment. We're talking about national shame. And so then, now, we move to chapter 43, and we looked at two sections here, which now we see God's chosen service servant confirms and fulfills these promises. So now we can reflect on some of the promises of God as well. Isaiah 43, for example, gives, first of all, the promise of restoration. In their case, it was the restoration of a nation that was brought into exile that will be restored once again. This week, as I was talking to some of the individuals that have Jewish friends, they were saying, I'm I'm looking for some ways to uh, witness to my Jewish friends. And I said, well, one of them is the restoration of the nation of Israel. Here we have Israel in the land again. I was talking with one of the students about the fact this is unprecedented, not only that it, because one was saying, hasn't Israel always been there? Well, technically there have been people there, there have always been some, but most have been scattered in the diaspora. But the thing that is most unique is you had a dead language called Hebrew. And now go to Israel and they speak Hebrew. There was a time where the only place you could learn Hebrew was in a seminary or maybe in a classical uh, department in a university. And now, when you go to Israel, everybody's speaking Hebrew. It's just a revival of a dead language. And again, it's just all part of this idea of restoration. Well, there's a restoration of our lives as well, that I think. And here, this is where he reminds them that God created them as a nation and just gives them a little bit of the history. God called Abraham out of the Ur and the Cald to Canaan. You have God who preserved the nation through Joseph's rule in Egypt while there was a famine there. Then you have a God who called Israel out of Egypt when they were in bondage to slavery and protected them. First of all, passing through the Red Sea, protected them as they were fighting against the Philistines and others. And the idea is... God has protected the nation in the past. God will protect the nation in the future. In some respects, that works for us as well. God has been faithful to you in the past. What can you expect from God in the future? His faithfulness. And again, so they could claim, indeed, that they would still have a place of favor. Then Isaiah calls the people to, in a sense, lean on these sure promises I think that's an implication for us. Just think of all the promises of God. There have been some great books written over the last couple of years about the promises of God. And I'll probably take us through another book review of one of those books pretty soon. Because it's just so fun to look at so many promises that are found in Scripture. And so this is just another implication that we can draw from the fact that they were to lean on the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. And just as we see the people's blindness, deafness, and ignorance, now we see that God has the freedom to do as he wills. And, of course, even in the midst of his judgment against the nation of Israel, we see restoration taking place. And then he promises not necessarily to remove the hardships, 
or to take us out of difficult circumstances, but to be with us in the midst of it. And I love the words here. Look at, uh, uh, again, you see some of these in chapter 43, where we see the idea of waters, rivers, fire, and flame. First, the waters. I don't know if some of you saw that YouTube video of that individual is driving a school bus and he just drives right into the water and the bus just goes, you know, very quickly you realize how dangerous it is to be in the waters. Uh, those of us that are fly fishing hopefully will not get over our waders and then we'll sink under those or something like that. But then the fire and the flame. Sometimes we feel like we're just going through the, the furnace. And where is God in the midst of it? Well, again, God promises his presence as sufficient strength to endure through those trials. And even more so, the implication here that Jesus actually uh, passed through the final trial of death to secure salvation for his people. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 15, which is the famous passage here about the resurrection and the implications of it in which Jesus saves us as well. More importantly, we should also recognize that knowing that God loves us, that should erase our fears. And if you want to write down one of those promises, I put that there, 1 John 4 verse 18, 1 John 4, 18, about how God's love should erase our fears. So no matter the distance, no matter the barriers, no matter the cost, we see, if nothing else, God will call his people home to a time of abundant joy and peace. And then, of course, we also see God's sovereign word confirms to his people their sure inheritance. We see that in verse 7 here, where he talks a little bit more about everyone who is called by my name, who I called from my glory, for I have formed and made just an assurance there as well. And the idea is we live in the light of God's presence. We gain confidence to face the challenges that are before us. And even when it sometimes seems like the whole world just crashing down on our heads. And that certainly has been the case this last week, isn't it? I mean, we have just, uh, just even around here, the number of loved ones that have died just in this last week. Um, the shootings, the bomber, which we've now caught, and just all the things that we're going through. How anybody can say that this is the best that God could do. This is obviously, this week has been an illustration, I think, for so many of us, of the fallenness of the world that we live in. And so even when everything seems crashing down on our heads and around our ears, if nothing else, we can take the promise of God in the midst of all of that. And also, even when we sometimes stray from his love, because some of that is due not just to the fallenness of the world, but due to our own sin, due to the fact that we stray. Right now in the book of Hebrews, that's the theme we're working through. Hebrews 3 and 4 really just talks about how it's easy for us to stray from God's word. We can sort of drift. The illustration I used a couple of weeks ago is if you ever been out on a boat, maybe in Galveston or Pensacola or wherever, and you're on a boat and you're just kind of sitting there and you're kind of looking around and all of a sudden you were over there. You just see that the current, just you just start straying from where you're supposed to be and then you have to sort of paddle back to get there. Some of us will be out on that little lake, you know, there's a, maybe less of a current, but again, you can see just the wind will stray pretty soon. You're a lot further where you intend to, well, that's kind of the way Christian life sometimes is. We're supposed to be on target, but sometimes it's so easy to stray. And here, even when we stray from his love and sin, we can see Christ's finished work can cleanse us through grace 
and peace. So again, just a great illustration there as well. Finally, verses 8 to 14, we won't go through the entire chapter here. One last concluding comment, and that is God's chosen servant frees us to be witnesses to every nation on earth. And here, the very famous passage, verse 8, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, all the people and the peoples assemble, who among them can declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. Verse 10 then goes on to talk about that you are witnesses, and let's talk about some of the things that we see there as well. Because here's the image, kind of visual image of bringing all the nations together. Now, by the way, we have that image in the book of Revelation, do we? We certainly have that. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. But here is kind of a, uh, if you will, a metaphorical image of all the nations assembled together. Witnesses being called to testify about who God is and what he has done. And into the assembly enters the blind and deaf. And here, Isaiah is once again reiterating the idea of God's grace. Granted by God. If nothing else, it is God that is allowing the people to know, to believe, and then to understand. Then it goes on to talk a little bit about witnesses, verse 10. And if you think about it, any good witness is something that is called to testify about something other than themselves. Now, some of you spend a fair amount of time in a court of law. And when you call a witness, you don't expect the witness to get up there and blah, 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 talk about themselves. They're a witness to talk about something else. And that's kind of the implication here, that they are talking about the truthfulness of the gospel and the truthfulness of God's um, character. And so our restoration, our redemption is about God and who he is. It's not about us. It's about him. And so the witnesses are testifying not to themselves, but testifying to who God is. And the idea is that life is found in God and the content of our message must be found in this one true God, which we see in uh, verse 10 in chapter 43. And there can be redemption only in one way, and that is redemption through the way, the truth, and the life that comes through Jesus Christ. And then finally, we have some comments here about the fact that these witnesses are testifying to the goodness and grace of God's redemption and his redemptive plan. Witnesses also provide a warning of God's judgment. And also then we, of course, saw God's wrath described in chapter 42. We will also see that God's will is certain and God's plan will indeed succeed. And finally, then for Judah, that is being addressed right now in the book of Isaiah, there would be rejoicing in the midst even of an exile from the land. Judah would be singing as they are carried away from the land in ships. Pretty interesting. For us, then, we rejoice, though, instead that Jesus grants us life in his resurrection. We experienced rejection and exile that we might experience life and peace. What a trade-off. He uh, actually receives rejection and exile so that we might receive life and peace. And he delivers people because he is our Lord, he is the Holy One, he is the Creator, and he is our King. So if nothing else, kind of a brief summary of Isaiah 42 and 43. Next week we'll get into some other passages there as well. But I thought in the interest of time, let me try to answer one of the questions that was asked of me last week. 
and it surfaces all the time. It is really amazing because even this week with some of the students, the question of eternal security came up. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6 in just a minute. I noticed that um, Robert Jeffress, I was at a banquet with him last night, he's preaching on that um, this morning at First Baptist. So if I don't do a good enough job explaining how Hebrews 6 fits with eternal security, he's actually preaching today on Hebrews 6, 1 through 9 at First Baptist. So you can listen to that a little bit later. So it just shows you that this is kind of one of those issues that surfaces time and time again. So what about that? One of the questions directly at me is, I have a friend, but is it possible that a friend could lose his or her salvation? Good question. Now, I'll just say very honestly that, first of all, the stand of this church, um, because we, in most cases, have studied at, graduated from, or taken classes at either Southwestern Baptist Seminary or Dallas Seminary, not exclusively, sometimes we have some others, that's the stand of those seminaries. It's the stand of most Bible teaching churches. It's the stand of most Presbyterian churches. But it isn't exclusive. I do know individuals who are individuals that love the Lord, that believe in the authority of Scripture, believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, read the same Bible as I do, but doubt eternal security. You know, I sit on two different Christian boards where at least one of each one of those individuals on that board um, actually does not believe in eternal security. So it's not a salvation issue. If you say, well, I'm still not sure about eternal security. I'm not doubting your salvation or your Christian conviction, but I want to try to help you understand why I think they're wrong and I know we're right. Is that fair? I know. I know that sounds a little bit pushy, but let's think about this for a minute. Um, Two years ago, uh, Tony Evans asked me to go and teach Wednesday night at his church. He was going to be out for the entire month, and so I taught every Wednesday at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And they did an Ask Kirby thing there as well. And one of the questions they handed me as I was ready to get up there was, can a person lose their salvation? So, and I hadn't thought through all the verses. So the first thing I said when I was speaking to the congregation there at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship is, how long is eternity? And everybody kind of looked, well, if it's eternal, then it doesn't end, right? Okay, so before I even get you to the verses, can we accept something? How long is eternal is a very good way to start the conversation. If I give you eternal life, and then you believe that you don't have eternal life, then there's a very important question. Even if you're just a young Christian, you probably know John 3.16, and that is where we have eternal life if we believe in Christ, right? So, before we even get into the verses, that's part of it. If we're promised eternal life, then it can never be taken away because it's what? Eternal. I don't maybe I'm missing something here, but that's just why, you know, I'm just a simple-minded person, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And if eternal security is not true then it seems that the promises of eternal life are in jeopardy. Now, I recognize, as we'll get into some of these verses, some people say, well, yeah, but it looks like you could lose verses, you could lose your salvation if you really misinterpreted, I think, Hebrews chapter 6. I recognize that some of our old Methodist friends held to that. Most of my charismatic friends don't believe in eternal security. I'll guarantee you there's hardly a legalistic church in America that doesn't doubt eternal security because one of the ways you can keep people convicted is, you know, you could lose your salvation. So if you're not here every Sunday, if you're not giving, 
giving a certain amount. So I, I understand why some people hold to it. But if the scriptures are our standard, let me give you some of the verses. The one that I used at lunch the other day was this one. Let's take the words of Jesus and think those through. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That should be good enough. But then the next verse says, then my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So, okay, if indeed you place your faith in Jesus Christ and he holds you in his hand, who can pull you out of his hand? No one. Okay, if indeed you trust in Jesus Christ and you are now righteous before God in terms of the imputed righteousness of Jesus on you, and now you're in the hand of the Father, who can pull you out of the Father's hand? Again, that's why most of us believe in eternal security. Okay, so Jesus says that about himself and about the Father. Does Paul say anything about that? Yeah. Uh, Romans 8, key passage here as well. You know, a lot of people remember Romans 8.28, but if you keep reading, Romans 8.38 and 39 says this, because Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in the creation will do what? will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That one seems to indicate, I think, pretty strongly eternal security as well. Wouldn't you think? I put, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm kind of a simple person, so that's just how I look at that. Okay, then we have many other passages, and I will not wear you out with them, but as in many of the epistles end, they make statements that could be interpreted as also promises of eternal security. Let me just pick one, last part of Jude, uh, and that is, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So this could be arguing for what's called eternal security. And then for our Calvinist friends, they also have a thing called TULIP. And one of those, the P, stands for perseverance of the saints. That is, an individual that would persevere, keep you from stumbling, keep you persevering. Now, I will admit that that, I think, is wrongly written because I would say it's not so much the perseverance of the saints as is the perseverance of the Savior. The Savior will persevere in your life even when you will not. And that brings us to the question some people say, you know, I know somebody and they, you know, they were at a Christian camp or they were at a church and they walked the aisle and they professed Christ. Maybe they were even baptized, but they certainly have strayed now. Well, we're going to get to that in just a minute, obviously, because you can see that's one of the other questions. And that is... What happens about those people then that strayed? Have they lost their salvation? And, of course, that is one of those issues I will address in a minute. But we can also look at the fact that this idea of being sealed, of persevering, is there. And so I thought there's another verse that you could use as well, and that's in Ephesians 4, verse 30. The Apostle Paul talks about the fact that believers are sealed to the day of redemption. Well, that would be the day of redemption. That's when you stand before the Lord. It's either through your death or through the 
rapture or however you're there. And this certainly seems to imply eternal security since he teaches that we are sealed to our day of redemption. Doesn't mean we're sealed to our day of sinning or sealed to our day of apostasy or sealed to the day of our unbelief. So it is possible, I think, the most reasonable assumption here is that some people may be saved in their hearts, but they're not necessarily saved in their heads and they go you know, off in a different direction. But it does get us to the second issue. Issue number one, is eternal security biblical? Sure seems like it is. Number two, that if eternal security is biblical, why do we have so many verses that talk about apostasy? Well, here's a good example. Philippians 1.6 teaches that God starts to work and with it he finishes. But at the same time, we do see that there are strong warnings against apostasy, those who abandon their faith. And believe me, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've seen some young people, maybe even here at Prestonwood and others. They were in the youth group. They go off to the university. They have secular professors that challenge their faith. And all of a sudden you notice that when the freshmen come back for Thanksgiving, the freshmen don't look so fresh anymore. And after about a year or two, some of them just stop coming to church, you know, and say, what about that? One possibility, of course, uh, is the possibility that they never truly trusted Christ. That's a possibility. And we see that in 1 John 2, verse 19, because here he talks about the fact that they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. And so he talks about sometimes when persecution comes, some might stray. And so they were not part of it. So that's a possibility. But probably the best way to think that through is, again, what does Jesus talk about when he talks about the parable of the wheat and the tares? And again, if you want to read this in your quiet time, Jesus not only gives us the parable, but this one time where Jesus gives this the interpretation of the parable, since Pastor Graham just did an outstanding message, and I was taking furious notes, and you'll see those notes in my Bible uh, just a few weeks ago. You can go back and visit that in more detail. But again, the point he made, and I think the point Jesus is, is when we look at it from our human eyes, all the wheat looks pretty much the same. But we find out it isn't. Because some may be in church with us and live in our lives and are maybe even believers, but it has never really taken any root, you know. And so that's the seed that never takes any root. And so that's the possibility there. They may still be saved, but it's never taken any root. They've never really grown in their faith. Even in the next step, we were talking about how, you know, some of you may, some of you may have just become a Christian and that's it, you know. Okay, I now know I'm going to heaven, but I'm just going to live my life like the world. But it never really takes any root. That's one idea. The other is, and this is a warning for us in the 21st century, is that some might be so caught up by the cares of the world. In other words, we may be saved, but we still live like a consumerist or a materialist. You know, we're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. We may be saved, but we simply do not manifest what Christ intended for us. And so those are why we, I think, see the word, the warnings of apostasy. So just because someone is in church or wears the Christian label doesn't assure them of salvation. And Jesus, in some cases, really warns that there are people who might appear religious 
but whose heart is far from him. And Jesus quotes from, we've been spending some time in the book of Isaiah, he quotes from Isaiah 29 when he's looking at the Pharisees and Sadducees, and what does he say? He says, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophecy of you, what did he say, hypocrites, as it is written, thus these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So there are some people that could be religious. Um, you can go to some of these very liberal churches, even here in Dallas, and see people going through the religious motions, but you get to know them. You even ask them about their salvation experience, you recognize that they're just religious, but they aren't really convicted in their heart. And so that's why there's a warning of apostasy. And if you find yourself saying, well, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not, there's a real quick solution to that. You know, convince your life to Christ and make sure that you are. And if you're not sure of an individual, maybe that you're talking to or you're witnessing to, sometimes the best thing to assume is assume they're not saved and ask for a decision. uh, Because ultimately, what is it promises in Scripture that you will what? Know that you have salvation. So, again, those are some sections on apostasy, but in the interest of time, let me get to the last one, which, again, I'm trusting that uh, uh, both of our pastors will probably address when we get to Hebrews 6. We're already in Hebrews 4, so we're making our way there. But this is the passage that sometimes people point to to suggest that you lose your salvation. What does it say? Here, the writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Okay, those people who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So there's the idea of somebody that has been enlightened, uh, shared in the Holy Spirit, the goodness of the word, that now have fallen away uh, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying him once again, the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. First of all, I would not bail a theological doctrine on such a confusing uh, multiple series of statements, you know, like that. But what about that? Because it seems to suggest that people who have been enlightened, have the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, uh, believe in the Word of God, now they've fallen away. And now it is impossible to restore them back to repentance. First of all, what I like to say to my friends that uh, deny eternal security and point to that verse, if indeed that's the case, it seems to, if I take that seriously, suggests that if you lose your salvation, you can never get it back again. First of all, I've never seen anybody say that. Most of the people that say you, you could lose your salvation still hold out to the idea that, like the prodigal son, you can come and regain it again. And so even if you take this the direction you're taking it, it doesn't really make your case. Matter of fact, it makes a pretty strong case against the fact that once you lose your salvation, you lose it all the time. But what I think is going on there? First of all, you can't really say that passage does not teach eternal security because you can just go a few verses later. One of the things you learn in Bible in, uh, interpretation is if that particular verse does not make sense, read it in its context. Okay? And a couple of verses later... Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, that sounds like eternal security, doesn't it? Uh, A little bit later, the writer of Hebrews also talks about, in verse 17, the unchangeableness of his purpose. The implication is his purpose in your life. 
And it talks about a famous verse, the steadfast anchor of the soul. You know, and hope is the anchor of the soul. So, And the anchor is pretty steadfast. So even there, I don't think you could even argue that verses 4 to 6 um, argue against eternal security because verses 11 and 17 and 19 seem to also argue for eternal security. So you're saying, okay, smart guy, what is going on here? <laughs> Here's my answer. I think if you look at 1 Corinthians 3, you see a passage almost like what you see in Hebrews 6. 1 Corinthians 3, here Paul says that a person who is saved can lose his or her opportunity for witness or his or her opportunity to impact other people who are lost. The similarity between 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 6, and frankly, the similarity between the epistles of Paul and Hebrews 6 is why a lot of people believe that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. Whether it was or not, the context is very clear in 1 Corinthians 3. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has everything to do with your public witness. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's saying not that you can lose your salvation, but you can lose your testimony before the watching world. Okay, if you have strayed from the Christian faith and you're living a degrading, debauched life and then you stand up and say, and you need to be saved, what's the world going to go? What a hypocrite, you know? I don't see any fruit in your life. I don't see any... uh, There's no reason I would believe that Christianity is true because when I look at you, you don't look like a very good example of that. Have we all seen situations where you've had individuals that maybe had a platform for giving the gospel out, who then by sin and degradation lost the opportunity to continue to be an effective witness for Christ? Of course we do. We have seen some individuals, we know, we've even talked about this here, who have led other people to the Lord that later strayed from the faith because they accepted a different religion, right? And we've seen that they actually were believers. They led other people to Christ, but then they strayed into another faith or religion. And so we can see, I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. So my argument would be, And again, I recognize that some Christians might disagree about that. But my argument would be that the warning passages in Hebrews, and especially this warning passage in Hebrews 6, is that believers should make sure that they don't lose their public witness. It has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It has everything to talk about losing your public witness. And if nothing else, it should encourage us to manifest the fruits of the Spirit, use our gifts, and use the integrity that we have in our lives to lead other people to the Lord.